I'm John Kane, and this is Resistance Radio. I want to thank you for joining me. We are broadcasting in Washington, D.C. on WPFW, and if you are listening on WPFW, I hope that you will support this station. We're off in New York, but we are, like I said, we're on in uh, in Washington. So uh, let me do a special pitch just to PFW. Uh, if you are listening to this program on WPFW, or if you're listening online, or if you're listening to it as a podcast, Please support this fine radio station and uh, give them a call. Their pledge line is 202-588-9739. Or you can go online to wpfwfm.org slash donate and make a contribution to this station in the name of Resistance Radio. Look, uh, Monday was MLK Day, Martin Luther King Day, uh, Day of Service as uh, uh, as it's being promoted. So I want to do my show today to talk about some of Martin Luther King's quotes, his thoughts, some that may not be as familiar as all of the uplifting, frankly, whitewashed uh, statements from from Martin Luther King. And and I got to start at the beginning, so to speak, not at the beginning of his speeches, you know, not not his earliest speeches or anything else, but what what I have to say is, is him addressing the beginning, because there's a lot of emphasis on 1619 and the 1619 project and the and the first African captives that were brought to North America and that kind of thing. But let me start with uh, with King's quote about what he regarded as America's original sin. He said, "Our nation was born in genocide when it embraced the doctrine that the original American, the Indian, was an inferior race, even before there were large numbers of Negroes on our shores." The scar of racial hatred had already disfigured colonial society. From the 16th century forward, blood flowed in battles of racial supremacy. We are perhaps the only nation which tried as a matter of national policy to wipe out its indigenous population. Moreover, we elevate that tragic experience into a noble crusade. Indeed, even today, we have not permitted ourselves to reject or feel remorse for this shameful episode. Our literature, our films, our drama, our folklore, all exalt it. All right. Well, you, you can't say it any more plainly than that. And, and granted, there's, there are some language differences. We don't necessarily use the, uh, the Indian, and I don't necessarily consider myself an American, original or otherwise. But, the, but King's point is, is clear. America's original sin, if you want to call it that, isn't, it wasn't slavery, or it certainly wasn't the transatlantic slave trade that that brought Africans. I mean, he said long before that. In fact, he cites the 16th century. For those of you who have trouble with this math, the 16th century is the 1500s, not the 1600s. So what King is saying is you have to start at the beginning and, and understand that the country was built on genocide and slavery. And in fact, slavery and genocide are so deeply interwound 
that it's almost impossible to separate, uh, in many regards, separate the two. But there is a difference because genocide is essentially extermination. And, and that's really what, what, what King was citing. That's what he was quoting. I mean, he was basically saying that as a national policy, exterminating, eliminating the in, indigenous population was, you know, was, was its goal. And you know what? The slave trade, in many ways, um, enhanced that or, or promoted that even more. See, look, for many people, they don't realize that the, the, the transatlantic slave trade, first of all, started with Native people being brought to, um, to Spain from the Americas, not Africans. Look, I'm not saying that Europe wasn't already fully engaged in, uh, you know, in hostage taking and, and, and grabbing uh, uh, people from Africa for, uh, to subject them to slavery in Europe. They had already done, been doing that. But what, the, what colonialism in the Americas starts out at is, is enslaving Native people. Long before they start trying to bring, you know, Africans, uh, you know, to to the Western Hemisphere. But when they did, and this is again, this is something that people just don't understand. You weren't going to put people on those those ships in those horrid, squalid, you know, uh, conditions that weren't going to make the trip. You were going to bring the healthiest men that you could from Africa. So you brought men. You didn't even bring women. And not because of weakness or anything else, but you, you brought men because the whole idea was to have young, strong, viral men that you could enslave in, uh, in, in the so-called new world. So if you only bring men, then what do you, what do, you do? I mean, to, uh, you know, to create what would ultimately be the chattel slavery industry? Well, you use Native women as breeding stock. So when we hear a lot of conversations about black people doing their their Gates, <laughs> their Henry Louis Gates stuff, and and determining that they may have, may or may not have Native ancestry, yeah, there's there's probably a significant amount of, uh, of of black black people who were descendants of slaves who had Native ancestry. Why? Because black men brought in from Africa were again were bred with, with Native women. That's what happened. That's, I mean, and that's just a matter of fact. It's, it's not a fact that's often talked about because what happens is, again, I talk about siloing all the time in this program. We put this tunnel vision on about what slavery was. I mean, we put this tunnel vision on, on what, what, what racism is. I mean, King addressed it perfectly about what race, racism was. It wasn't a black and white thing. It, it starts the first time white people came into an area where they could look at somebody and say they physically look different than me. And I'm going to cast these people. And look, this starts with the Greeks. The Greeks were, the, were among the first to, to suggest that, that only you know, the white Europeans were the, were the superior race. And in fact, the Greeks would su suggest that, you know, Plato, Socrates, they would suggest that, that there may not even be real, they may not be real human beings if they're black. And they didn't know about native people at the time. But they were looking at Asians, they were looking at Africans, and they were thinking, yeah, that might be a subhuman species. And certainly, that's the way the, uh, the European colonizers treated Native people, as subhuman, inhumane, not human. And King calls it.
But I can tell you, in, in all of the scholarship, in all of the academia, and all of the studies, and 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 stories, and and the way that America's original sins are addressed, we don't have enough black people like King making the connection to to how it is that people survived, not just black people surviving slavery. I mean, we could argue, oh yeah, well, black people they weren't being eliminated no they they were just being enslaved like like somehow that's that's a bonus native people were being eliminated i mean there was a there was a clear effort to exterminate us i've talked about l frank Baum, the wizard of oz guy uh, quoting that the best thing for se- the security of the frontier was to exterminate annihilate eliminate native people because we were never going to let white people live in peace but you know what the, the tunnel vision that we're talking about here, it didn't just start in, with recent and, and modern-day scholarship. Frederick Douglass thought Native people should be eliminated, too. He, th- he thought that our lands should be taken from us, and that would be a way to, to, make, to give black people an opportunity, a slice of the American dream. Because a slice of that American dream means you got to take it from somebody. And Frederick Douglass knew you weren't going to take anything from white people. So let's join in and taking it from Native people. That's kind of what the Frederick Douglass uh, mantra was. That, I mean, most people don't know that. And it's not talked about widely. I have a whole different perspective on somebody like Harriet Tubman, who I knew, and I've talked about this before. There's no way that Harriet Tubman could have been successful with, with what she is attributed to in terms of the Underground Railroad without having some indigenous knowledge. You never heard... Frederick Douglass talk about any redeeming value of, of indigeneity, but you, but, you, but you knew there's no way you could survive trying to, free, uh, you know, to flee slavery without having some indigenous knowledge. And, and of course, we know how the history of, of, of the mixing of Native people and, uh, and former slaves, the formerly enslaved, would create essentially the, the Seminole Nation, would create a lot of, of, of um, integration of, of, of former slaves and, and indigenous people and everybody from the Tuscarora to the Cree to the Choctaw, all, you, know, all, you know, many, many nations embraced and brought in people who were, were suffering a similar fate in terms of the atrocities committed against them. I mean, there's no question about that. So I think it's, it's important that, that we discuss this stuff and understand this stuff because it just doesn't seem like, like it's being taught. And, and again, that's, what, that's what, what King's talking about. King's talking about, he goes, look, we're not even going to tell the truth about it. We're not going to own it. We're not going to own any of this stuff. And what, what's he say again? Let me, let me, re, re, let me uh, repeat what he says. Moreover, we elevate the tragic experience into a noble crusade. You know who did that? <laughs> Barack Obama. Barack Obama literally praised the Homestead Act as this great thing for America. Well, yeah, I suppose it was. It wasn't a great thing for Native people who were, who were being stripped of the land. And you know who else embraced things like the, the Homestead Act? Frederick Douglass. But no, King calls it out. We elevate the tragic experience into a noble crusade like, like, like the Homestead Act. Indeed, even today, we have not permitted ourselves to reject or feel remorse 
for any of this stuff. I mean, there are many politicians who have no remorse. In fact, they look at the genocide committed against Native people as just a natural human nature kind of event. It was unavoidable. It was a clash of cultures. There, there was no getting around it. You had to commit genocide against Native people. We were in the way. I mean, and that's what King was talking about then. But how many people quote this? No, they're going to quote all of his uplifting, oh, I have a dream. I'm going to reach that mountaintop. You know, and, and, and they say all these stuff. I mean, let me, let me use another quote. Here's another quote from King. The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Well, that's the quote, right? Well, let's, um, let's look at what the original quote was, because the original quote's a little different than that. The original quote is from a guy by the name of Theodore Parker, and he says, here's his quote. And this is, where, this is what King was paraphrasing. He goes, I do not pretend to understand the moral universe. The arc is a long one. My eyes reach but a little ways. I cannot calculate the curve and complete the figure by the experience of sight, I can divine it by conscience. And from what I see, which isn't much, I'm sure it bends towards justice. Okay, first off, what does the moral universe even mean? I mean, when people talk about morals and, and morality, morality and the, and the idea of striving for morality is about creating the conditions that life can... Can, can be sustained, specifically human life. So morality is about us. It's about human beings, but not all human beings. Because if you have just a, a certain group, and not even a large group, because let's face it, white people are not, the, are not the majority of the people on the planet, by the way. <laughs> they really aren't. But if, if only white people are de determining what is moral and what is the moral universe, I, I kind of like, this is Theodore Parker's quote originally. I, I kind of like it because he says, I can't see it. He goes, I, I don't know where, where it goes. But what he says is we can divine it. It means that human beings, that we can tailor, we can bend that moral universe, the arc of that moral universe towards justice. If we use conscience, if we use righteousness. But the problem is, it hasn't bent toward justice. I mean, it just hasn't. Humanity is not divining the moral universe, the arc of the moral universe towards justice. No, there's more violence and there's more death and destruction every single day. King was also aware of that. And so here's what he says. He says, until we commit ourselves to ensuring that the underclass is given justice, an opportunity, we will continue to, per to perpetuate the anger and violence that tears the soul of the nation. I fear I am integrating my people into a burning house. He told this to Harry Belafonte. He says, I, I feel like I'm integrating my people to, into a burning house. What he said is, I'm not sure that that's where our people should be integrated into American society as it, as it was known. Perhaps that American dream is causing diabetes, grabbing that slice of pie. It's causing diabetes. Maybe that's not what we want. Now, when Harry asked him, he goes, then, then what do we do? And he said, and King says, we become firemen and we put the fire out. We don't let the house burn. Well, look, if that's still the house you want to be in 
And this is where, from a native standpoint, there's a, there's a fine line between this notion of integration and assimilation. And this is kind of the thing that, where, where I get pitted against my own people very often. I mean, in, in all kinds of conversations, I mean, all kinds of conversations, I, we get caught into the, you know, to this notion of, should Native people vote in, in U.S. elections? I, I made it very clear, no, we shouldn't. We shouldn't be voting in the systems that oppress us. Because that oppression didn't stop when, uh, you know, in, the, in the 16th century. King says from the 16th century forward to this very day. So, no, <laughs> we've got to be careful about what, from a, from, again, I'm opposed to native integration. I'm not trying to be integrated, assimilated, indoctrinated into the American system. This is, again, I've talked about this before on previous shows. This is between decolonization and, what, integration or, or civil rights? or human, I mean, I don't, I don't even know what the verses it is. <laughs> but in terms of decolonization, we're saying, no, let's not let ourselves get entangled into those systems of oppression. Or as many, and I've, look, I've had some healthy discussions with some Native people who said, well, the, our solution is to vote, get our people in there, and then we can fix it from the inside. Really? Really? Do we think that's, that's really going to happen? I mean, <laughs> again, I'm not trying to pick on Deb Howland, but Deb Howland has done very good for herself. She not only got white people to vote for vote her into, into Congress, well, Native people too, but predominantly she, she got voted in by white people. She not only got voted in, she got a cabinet position with, with Joe Biden. Again, old white guy in, in, the, in the White House. She got a cabinet position for herself. Man, congratulations. But that wasn't a gift to us. That was, you know, that was window dressing. That was, you know, <laughs> like that's blowing smoke. I mean, when, when Joe Biden puts puts Deb Howland in the interior department. And then she has to be careful not to seem too jaded about what the United States has done to native people and continues to do. She won't even address Nate gaming issues. And that's an area that she has expertise in. So no, we didn't gain something. We lost somebody who could have been an advocate on gaming issues. And we lost her when she went into Congress, not just when she got put into this position. So when native people get elected, that just strengthens the white folks. In fact, often, more often than not, when black people get elected, <clears throat> they just strengthen the two-party system because that's what they have to be, be a part of. And both of those parties are part of that burning house. Look, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to realize how screwed up the United States is right now. But it was designed this way. Trump lost that last election by 7 million votes. No, he didn't. He, he lost a popular vote by 7 million votes. But he only needed about 30, maybe 40,000 more votes in key spots because that's how the system is built. It's built so a guy like Trump can get elected almost a second time, both times losing the, the, uh, by a big margin the popular vote. That's the way the system's designed. It favors white supremacy. It does. I mean, look, 
the, the three-fifths compromise or four-fifths compromise, whichever one it is. It's, it's a fraction of a human being that black people will be able to be counted as, not for, for their rights, but so white people could benefit from their, their you know, their stock of slaves, of the enslaved. I mean, that's, that's what that was all about. It was so, so rich white men down south could have a stronger voice in government by being able to enumerate the amount of people he had enslaved to give them more voice in Congress. That, I mean, that was, that's what that was all about. I mean, if, if I, it's a shame I've got to explain it, but that's what that was all about. And the whole idea that every state would have the same amount of, of senators, regardless of population, that benefits again. About, it, it benefits, you know, uh, the South. It benefits one side of that political spectrum. And it's not to give, you know, a whole lot of props to, to how the Democrats have managed things. I mean, look, you, the, the amount of contradiction that you hear out of somebody like Joe Biden over the years, and, and this guy has been, he, he is the definition of career politician. The amount of contradiction is, is, is incredible. You know, so obviously there's a lot to, to chase after there. But so should we be a part of that, trying to vote? Trying to choose Biden over Trump because that's a great choice for us? No. Both sides of that political spectrum are part of that burning house. And it's getting worse. Now, look, we can always cite things like the Great Depression and we can cite the Civil War. We can cite all of these, you know, these horrific you know, periods of U.S. history. But in, in general, by the time you wrap in what the United States has been foremost responsible for, which is climate change. The role that the United States plays in global conflicts, which they are foremost uh, an influencer on. What the United States has done to be contradictory over things like human rights while they're throwing, you know, spending billions on Israel killing Palestinians because they have the right to defend themselves. Or... Other global conflicts, I mean, look, it isn't just Ukraine and, and Gaza where this violence is taking place. The United States has been involved in coups in South America, in, in Africa, all over the place. The United States dropped atomic bombs on a, one of the smaller countries in the, uh, you know, in the world, Japan. I mean, the history is, is incredible especially when you consider the United States tries to promote itself as somehow the, the conscience of the, of, the, of the planet when their actions have been unconscionable. Again, King said it. I mean, this is kind of, I mean, this is what, what he's talked about. I mean, there's no, and to hear somebody like King say this stuff, and look, King had positive things to say. I mean, he, he talked about, again, hoping that the United States could live up to its creed. But that creed never involved us. We weren't part of that. All men are created. They weren't talking about us. They were talking about white people. You know, and oh, here's the other, what's the, another famous quote, and this one gets cited all the time. Darkness cannot uh, um, drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Well, you know, I don't disagree with these things. But I am not going to change those people who hate me by loving them. 
No, that's and, and I don't believe that's what, what King was saying either. I mean, we can we can you know parse these words, but if you convince people to be more loving, then yeah, then hate goes away. But you can't counter hate and violence simply with love. You can't say, Oh, I love you, as, as somebody's committing these atrocities against you. And trust me, there were plenty of slaves of, of, of enslaved human beings that loved their masters. Some physically doing it. Some really believing, you know, always using that, that possessive, uh, uh, our house, our master. Or, uh, we, always saying we. When, when, when people start saying, what do you mean we? And, and this, was, this was a common, the, the house Negro would say that. How we feeling this morning, massa? What do you mean we? No, <laughs> we have got to combat hate and violence with education, with intelligence. Look, the reason that I engage people on social media the way that I do is, is to expose people. And look, I've talked about King. In fact, I, I, when I posted King's quote about the genocide, I said, you know, and the fact that the United States exalts their history with the, uh, of the treatment of Native people, that's the basis for the mascot issue. And I got to tell you, I, I do, I got to, I hate to admit it, I enjoy engaging some of these racist you know, asses that are, that are on social media. Because eventually, what they say may be seem benign at first, but the more you press them, and the more you call them out. And you don't have to come out and say, oh, you're, you're, you're just a blatant racist. No, you don't start with that conversation. You, you, you kind of pull them in a little bit. And next thing you know, the very person who was saying that something that some people could view as, yeah, that makes sense to me. Yeah, it, it had to be just white people who made these mascot, this mascot band come in. No, it wasn't. Let me tell you the truth. So I tell the truth. And then the next thing you know, I'm, I'm being called a snowflake and a liberal and everything else. Well, for one thing, I'm, I'm not even a part of what your system. And then you get them, well, why don't you go back to Canada where you came from? Or why don't you move to Cuba? You know, getting white people to tell native person, why, why don't you just go away then? Go back where you came from. White people telling a native person this. I mean, this is where you, you can really kind of lure them into this conversation about how racist they really are. And really that lies at the foundation. I mean, King didn't bring up gen the genocide committed against native people as just a conversation piece. He was trying to say that this is racism lies at the foundation of the United States because it, it, it was a, what colonism was all, colonialism was all about. You don't colonize a people who are already like you. You assimilate and indoctrinate them. If they look like you, you beat any of their distinction out. You, you force conformity upon them. So, and, and that's what European, you know, that's what the monarchies did. That's what the church did in Europe. They, they wiped out the cultures of, of all the indigenous people throughout Europe. They created conformity. A conformity that the church could sanction. This is all part of creating 
Christian nations, Christendom. That's what it's called, right? To destroy the enemies of Christ. That's what they call it. I mean, and, that, and that's what they did when they came, came to our land. You know, it's, it's nice saying, oh, this was just about conversion. Isn't that what the residential school was all about? Teaching Christianity? No. It was about destroying a people. I mean, that's what, that's what genocide is. Genocide is, is about creating the, the conditions with the intent, and it's always got the intent thing in there, with the intent to destroy a people, to make them cease to exist as a distinct people, to do away with them. I had one person in, on social media talk to me, well, you're never going get, to get rid of racism towards Native people until they no longer exist or till we, we, we deem them as no longer, until we forget about them. We wipe them, we wipe them out of our consciousness. I mean, that's something that was said yesterday. Not, not in the 16th century. Yesterday, a white man basically said that to me. And look, and when you post on social media, you are just saying it to me. You're seeing how many other white people. And look, and when when a white person says something outrageous like this, I mean, what somebody said, uh, you know, I, I, somebody's saying, well, the Redskins is a good name. No, it isn't. It's a racial slur. Somebody says, your mother's a racial slur. For one thing, my mother's dead. And so when I called somebody out about how great America it was and how great it was to have freedom, you know, free expression and freedom of speech and, and have giving, allowing opinions to, you know, you know, to exist like this, I says, yeah, like this guy? And they said, no, that was repugnant. Well, you say that now, but you didn't, you didn't call him out when he said those things. You don't, you don't get anybody in the pro-mascot camp that will take on anybody within that camp, even when they say the most racist things. They just all of a sudden remain silent. Well, maybe you do change some of them. Maybe some of those ones who are, who are indifferent. Well, oh yeah, maybe the mascot thing is not a good thing. Maybe using the native people for mascots is wrong. I mean, I think the best way to, to knock some of those people back from that precipice is to show who's promoting it the most. Who are the loudest? Who are the squeakiest wheels? And what are, and what are they squeaking? Overt racism. At some point, you can get them all. Anybody who's prepared to engage somebody in a debate, regardless of whether it's in a you know in an auditorium or on social media, if they are going to take on the the side of promoting the use of native people for mascots, eventually you can break them right down to being Trumpers or you know or being white supremacists or, or something of that, of that like. I mean, it's, it's really easy to do. Now, I take it back. It's easy for me to do. It's not always easy to expose people. You know, because a lot of people, a lot, a lot of people want to be forgiving, right? They want to, they want to make excuses. Well, maybe, I, I, you know, I mentioned last week that uh, it was the anniversary of me stopping the police from shutting down a round dance, a uh, flash mob round dance, uh, supporting Idle No More at the Galleria Mall here in the Buffalo area. Somebody says, well, um, um, maybe uh, mall management told the police not to do it. No, I, I had to literally talk the cops out of doing something stupid. And, and I said, yeah, well, but maybe you, you guys were, were being disruptive. I said, yeah, a month before when they were doing Christmas carols on the steps and blocking you know, the flow of traffic, pedestrian traffic in the mall, nobody said a word. I mean... 
you get people trying to make excuses for, you know, for, for bad behavior. Well, maybe it wasn't really bad behavior. Maybe they were, weren't really coming after you. No, they, you know, they had a whole line of cars out front, and this guy was reaching down for his pepper spray when I talked him out of it. So, I mean, look, and this is what we see. Oh, no, the, the mascot thing, nobody had any bad intentions. No, I'm not saying that they had bad intentions towards us when they started using us as our mascots. You know why? Because they didn't care. They didn't care what we thought. It had, white people using Native people for mascots has nothing to do with us. It just doesn't. It's a part of what King talked about exalting in, in, in their mistress, in, in, in the atrocities they committed against us. You, the way you give yourself a pass is, well, yeah, we, we honor Native people now. We think that we, we call them noble savages now. We don't call them the dirty, stinking Redskins. Now we call our, the football team in our nation's capital that word. And we're supposed to be, take that as like a compliment? And we're supposed to think, oh, yeah, see, see that they like us now. You look, even, <laughs> you know, even the code talker thing that, that, that's so popular. I mean, every time Veterans Day rolls around, everyone's, oh, Native people were code talkers and they saved. I mean, I know people get involved. Oh, we, we won the war because we let them militarize our, our language for their, for their code talking. Really? Won the war? Because Native people's language was used to perpetrate the, the U.S. victory in the war? You, you're gonna, we're going we're gonna to try that? Well, let me tell you. For one thing, Native people who were used as code talkers were like the radio. Just a piece of equipment. The code was much more important than the, than the individuals who were providing it. In fact, the, the, you know, the, the rule was if a code talker looked like he was going to be captured, if imminent capture was, was unavoidable, that native guy was supposed to be shot by his own people. Kill that, kill that Indian. Don't let them take him captive because they'll then they'll, they'll get the code out of him. It's the only example in the U.S. military where, and see, it's not even considered friendly fire. This was about, no, you just kill, you kill one of your own because he's not really one of your own. He's just a tool. That's what, and, and I gotta tell you, everybody thinks, well, yeah, Native people, they, they enlisted so they could help with this, you know, give their own. Many of the people who were, who were pushed into this code talker, you know, job, they were facing some sort of arrest. Many of them were told, well, either you're going to jail or you can enlist in the military. Uh, and do you speak your language? Because we can make, make, we can make use of that. And, not, and let me tell you, they were still destroying our language this whole time. Residential schools were still killing our language, even as the military was using our language. Even though the military saw value in our language, for their purposes, nobody else did. Nobody else did. And how were, we, how were we repaid? Well, we weren't. There's no reparations for what 150 years of residential schools did to our culture, did to our language, did to our population, did to our children. Oh, we're going to have a conversation about that for the, what, next decade and a half, two decades? While folks like Deb Hallen scramble like hell to try to 
keep down the numbers of dead buried at the sites of these residential schools? Just like Canada tried to keep it down? One of the action items that came out of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was, let's determine how many Native children died. Let's determine where those children are. Canada said, nah, nah, we're not doing that. So Native territories had to hire engineers with ground-penetrating radar so they could come up with, with their own assessment of how many Native children were killed in these schools. Canada wasn't going to do it. And the United States is going to drag their feet. Truth be told, based, just judging on the numbers that have already been produced from the Canadian side and the few that have on the U.S. side, the numbers are going to come in, come in the 40, 50, 60,000 range. That's how many children died. Now, we can debate whether they died or whether they were killed, but either way, they died. I don't know how many people, I don't know how many people have an experience with going to school where the school had to have a graveyard. Native schools did. So when King talks about the blood spilled in a battle over white supremacy, that's what he's talking about. And it's still being spilled. I watched um, Killers of the Flower Moon again last night. Um, I, went, I saw it in the theaters, and then I, and then I watched it on uh, Apple TV. You know, somebody said, uh, told me this, well, you got it wrong. They, they did talk about there being hundreds of deaths. That was mentioned once in the whole film. And it was never really, it was never really talked about, about how, what, the, what the scale of the amount of murders. It got mentioned one time, and, and frankly, you could blink and miss it. No, they concentrated on about 10, you know, 20, 30 of the killings. And then the FBI disregarded most of them because they wanted to focus their, their trial, their conviction, on just essentially one family, the Burkharts and, and, and their uncle, uh, William Hale. That's what they wanted to concentrate on and, and their accomplices. They didn't want to talk about the, the massive amount of complicity and participation in the murders of the Osage in the exploitation of their money. And they didn't even talk about how bad the oil companies were exploiting them. No, that didn't even get discussed in the film. Well, look, I'm the native uh, actors. In fact, all of the actors were great. I mean, De Niro and DiCaprio, they're great actors. And they, and they portrayed their roles very well. But you know what? Those roles were created in many ways. I mean, look, the DiCaprio character, Ernest Burkhart, they made that, I mean, they created the whole character development not based on matters of fact. I think the De Niro character probably was more true to, true to life. The William Hale character. Mar, the Molly Burkhart, uh, the Lily Gladstone character, was probably more true to life. But they made the, the center of this film, the Leo, Leonardo DiCaprio character, they gave him conscience. They made him seem like a tortured individual. Not a guy. And in fact, even as they por, uh, portrayed him as committing many more robberies than the book even did, that the book is based, the film is based on. I mean, they had him grave robbing. They had, that had him participating in holding up people, uh, Native people stealing their jewelry. That was never in the book. And that's not anything that, you know, that the uh, Ernest Burkhart ever admitted to. But I watched it, I watched it again last night because the, the, I've heard a lot of Native people, especially Osage people, who have criticized anybody who criticized the film. And most of the, criti the criticism towards the film was 
they just didn't do much character development. My wife watched the film for the first time last night. And she said, they kind of made the Osage seem kind of dumb. Yes, they did. And were they? No, they weren't. They were oppressed. There's never a sense that any of the women, or the men for that matter, that, that, that um, Osage men and women who married out did so with the intent to play white people. No, it's always about white people playing us, or playing them, I should say. You're getting over on them, taking their money. Well, I got to suspect that some of these Osage people, women in particular, said, I'm going to grab me a white man so I can get better access to my money because the government's not letting me have my own money. Look, I'm glad the film got made, and I'm glad it's getting you know some of it you know uh, some of the praise that it's getting. It's it, it, it's gotten great reviews. It hasn't made any money apparently, and I don't know why. I mean, granted, it's a long film, three and a half hours. I don't know why this film should have cost two hundred million dollars to make, and it probably won't make that money back because that's how much it costs to make. But by the time you talk about how much they had to promote the film in theaters and do all these other events. They probably double the cost of that. Marketing a film is not cheap either. And that's not caught, and that's not necessarily folded into the production costs. So a $200 million film may really end up costing, you know, the studio, uh, you know, Apple. Of course, Apple doesn't care. They don't care if they lose money. But you know what? What's it send as a signal to the to the film industry? Well, if you spend too much money on a native film, you're not going to make the money back. I'm glad, look, Disney's having success with some of their, you know, um, some of their um, series they're doing, uh, the Marvel characters with uh, uh, with Echo and um, uh, Alakwa Cox and uh, uh, Devery Jacobs and some of the folks who are playing you know, in, in some of these Disney uh, series. The Reservation Dogs has done well. We're seeing a lot of these, uh, frankly, we're seeing a lot of the same actors being uh, getting work in, in the film industry. It's a shame that it's always the same actors. So it's the same six or eight actors that are getting all of this work with a few others. I just hope people don't get tired of seeing our, our, our people. I, you know, Cause we're not the rock. <laughs> we're not Schwarzenegger, you know, where you, where you build the whole, your know, Tom Cruise, where you build several, um, you know, franchises off of somebody's personality. You're not going to, it's not going to happen with native people. Not anytime soon, but I, I get, I get concerned. Because the film hasn't necessarily been financially successful, although it's been critically acclaimed. And, and it is raising awareness. But here's the fear, and I've talked about this before. My fear is that you're going to look at something, and just like what the mascot thing does, right? It casts us as these relics of the past. You're going to look at the Killers of the Flower Moon. Man, those Native people were treated badly. Well, I can't help but liken our success or potential success in the gaming industry as liken it to the Osage discover, having oil discovered on the land. Because we're not allowed to do the gaming without, without government intervention. Originally, we were. I mean, the Supreme Court said, no, there's no laws saying that Native people can't do gaming. So what do they do? They pass a law that says Native people can't do gaming unless we do it under a, federally, a federal statute. The Indian Game Regulatory Act. And what, and what does that call on? It tells Native people, you have to have the states involved in your gaming. You have to enter into a gaming compact with the state that surrounds you. Even if you're not part of that state, as if it surrounds you, 
you've got to have a gaming compact with a state. And you know what? They're going to screw you. And we're going to look the other way while they're screwing you, while they're taking, while they're forcing you into revenue sharing, because if you don't revenue share, and, and look, all the advisors to the Seneca Nation and all these other nations say, look, you got to make it worth the state's while. It's not enough that the law says the states have to negotiate a gaming company. you got to sweeten the pot for them. you got to pay them. Now, the law doesn't say we have to pay them, but the reality says you got to pay them. So you get somebody like Kathy Hochul and you know um, Prince Andrew Cuomo really screwing Native people over on this notion of revenue sharing and really backing Native people into a corner thinking, think, you're going to do revenue sharing. Or we're not even going to negotiate a gaming compact with you. And so we're led to believe, and the silence that comes from the Interior Department, the Deb Hallen Interior Department, or and the Interior Departments over the last 30 years have said, nothing. He said, no, no, a state can't shut you down. They can't walk away from a gaming compact. They can't, if you've spent billions of dollars developing an industry, the state can't shut you down because they just, because they are going to explore, you know, extort money out of you. They can't do that. No, the Interior Department has said nothing. See, see, again, I, I can't help but think about King's quotes, his speeches, his comments about white supremacy and, and the violence associated. Look, the Seneca Nation has had to give up half of its revenue to the state of New York from gaming. Revenue that they, they need. Because, look, we're facing, you know, any, in many ways, there's a certain you know, likeness to, to what we experience in, you know, be, with, with substance abuse and drugs and, and violence and that kind of stuff. But we can solve that because we're, we're a smaller community if we have the resources. But if the state grabs half the resources, so what? They can give it to the billionaire to build a stadium for his football team? $2.2 billion is what the Seneca Nation has given up to the state. They could have solved, I mean, a third of all Senecas live below the poverty line. And, and look, and this is just an example that plays out in every Native territory. Now, now, look, some Native territories have a very small population and very successful gaming, like the, the Pequots had and the, the Mohicans had or have. But, and, and they've lived large off of that. And, many way, and, and, and much, in many ways, to their detriment, they have. Because, again, they get exploited to spend more, spend more, invest more, make it bigger, make it bolder. You put fancier this, fancier that. Next thing you know, they're in debt up to their eyeballs. I mean, the Osage now re, uh, live more off of gaming revenue than they do off of oil revenue. They still have oil there. And you know what, what happened to all those head rights? Those head rights got watered down to every all kinds of white people. I mean, universities. Non-Osage, there are people with head rights to Osage oil who don't have any Osage connection other than, you know, 15 minutes of fame, I guess, with them. So this film is great. I'm glad there's, um, I, I know that um, uh, there's, there's another film coming out that's going to call Long Knives. Um, that's going to talk a little bit more about the Koch brothers connection to this stuff. And I hope people still continue to pay attention to this. Because what happened to the Osage people not only is terrible, but it continues today. The fact that Native people are still being exploited by white people. And look, 
there's a certain exploitation that that's almost a foregone conclusion. I mean, and, and I talk about this all the time. We don't have true economies on our territory. We're not, we're not that big, for one thing. We're, we don't have grocery stores and car dealerships and, and appliances dealerships and, and the service industry. We don't have that. We have a little bit. We've we got grocery, you know, convenience stores, which were an outgrowth of smoke shops and gas stations. We've got a lot of cannabis shops. We can buy plenty of weed, plenty of tobacco, and we can get our, our gas without paying state tax on it. But other than that, everything else we buy off our territory. So all the money that comes in, whether it's through gaming or whether it's through the private sector uh, build out of uh, cannabis and tobacco and gas and you know a few other businesses that have had some moderate success, all those dollars get spent and the, and the, the um, community around us is our beneficiaries to it. Now, people say, yeah, but they're spending money to you first, and you, you get the first crack at that money. Yeah, but then we put it right back into their economy. So the fact that a white person might save, or, or a non-Native person will save a few dollars um, in state tax by shopping on the Native territory, the state gets that right back, because what they saved is still being spent in the area, and, and of course, we spend it right back. There's no loss to the state. When I tell you here, the state says, well, we lose over $200 million a year in, uh, in tax revenue because of tobacco sales on Native territory. No, you didn't. You don't lose anything. We didn't take it from you. And in fact, we spend every dime right back in. And, and look, nobody ever hires an economist to do a real assessment. I mean, the Seneca Nation's done it a few times. But, but nobody, I mean, there's all these great schools in, here in Western New York throughout the state that they could look at this and say, wow, the Senate, the native people are really being screwed. They don't even, they don't even better. Here's, here's the thing. I'm not a, an economics professor, but what I do know is if a dollar doesn't change hands at least three times within a community, that community doesn't benefit from it. So well, what's a community? Well, a community can be looked at as a neighborhood, can be looked at as a couple of neighborhoods, but if a dollar comes into a region and leaves immediately, then they didn't benefit from it. Now, if, if dollars are coming from that community and then get whisked away even farther, like from the state, so if, a, if $2 billion is taken from New York State, from Western New York, in terms of gaming revenue, and it gets thrown into their coffers, or even into a football stadium that has no economic benefit to the region, then that's a loss. That's a loss, but it's not a loss that we caused. That's money taken out of a region. Nobody's ever assessed the negative economic impact of the state grabbing gaming revenue. Nobody's ever done it, and they won't do it because it's not a narrative they want to tell. Instead, they will pretend that we're all doing fine. And that the things that they're doing are somehow embracing us. Halland in the Interior Department. Mascots on your football helmets. We're supposed to sit back and say, oh, these gestures have made it all right now. I mean, I remember when Mitch McConnell was asked about reparations for black people. He said, what do you mean reparations? You had a black president. Well, I feel that's the exact same attitude that people have about Deb Halland being in the Interior Department. What do you mean reparations? We gave you, we have a Native Cabinet Secretary. 
named a couple of native judges in a couple of states who are never going to rule towards rule in favor of native people because they don't want to be look uh, look like they should have recused themselves. White people can rule about white people, but don't let native people be put in those positions and make rulings favorable to native people. Now we got to scrutinize it. I am glad that people will still continue to reiterate the words of Martin Luther King. But don't let them be whitewashed. Don't cherry pick the things that make everybody feel good without addressing his concern about integrating into a burning house, his concern about genocide and the blood that was spilled in the war over white supremacy from the 16th century. Let's use his quotes wisely and let's make a point. Let's not just try to make each other feel good over it. I think it's important that people understand this history. I think it's important that people understand that history collides. You can't silo individual events. You can't talk about the Osage and not talk about Tulsa. You can't talk about Native people being deemed incompetent to have their own money in 1920, oil revenue, and ignore the fact that Native people are still being deemed incompetent to run their own gaming enterprises today. That is white supremacy. That is racism. Hats off to Martin Luther King. We'll do, we'll do some more. <laughs> I want to thank you for, for joining me. I'm John Gain, and this is Resistance Radio.